Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. Christy, we are so happy you can make it. And in such an unusual time, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. So tell us a little bit about you. Where do you work? Where are you currently? And what are you looking for? I work at the Night Agency, which is out, well, it's out of Madison, Georgia, which is an hour east of Atlanta. I'm from Atlanta, but right now I'm in Colorado. I just got here with my my in-laws, which has been really, really great, a really great break. I have a seven-month-old son, and it was getting to the point that the balancing of work and home life just, just became, it became a lot. So this has been a wonderful, wonderful break and great to see family and still be in a safe environment. In terms of what I'm looking for, I I represent adult YA middle grade. Adult, I'm really looking for high concept women's fiction kind of things that would fall under, you know, book club fiction. I'm open to rom-coms. And then YA middle grade, I'm pretty much open to everything fiction-wise. Um, so pretty wide there. Can you tell us your definition of high concept? Because this is something that's come up with oh a lot. Oh my gosh, I and almost no one has a high concept explanation for high concept. As soon as I was out of my mouth, I was like, I'm sure their follow-up question will be what's high <laughs> I'm like, I should not have said that. Sorry, we have to. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's such a great question because it is a phrase that is thrown around a lot. For me, high concept means something that you can really just boil down fairly easily and it sticks in your brain. I just finished Wilder Girls and I remember when it's oh, yeah. and it was pitched as like Lord of the Flies, a feminist Lord of the Flies with like an environmental angle. And that's so easy to remember. And it's taking, for me, I think sometimes the easiest way to think of high concept is taking something recognizable and kind of putting a twist on it. So like most people know what Lord of the Flies is or at least have heard of it. And then, you know, the twist is that it has this feminist angle, this environmental angle. Oh, that's so interesting. I I love the Lord of the Flies part. I would think of it more as like, and I love how we can do this. Because like if you take an apples to apples, who's going to pitch it? How are they going to pitch it? You can see the mechanics behind of pitching it, right? So like I would think of it kind of as Lord of the Flies with a magical pandemic, actually. Yeah. Which is also true. Well, that's so interesting when I was reading it, not to give away any spoilers. I actually thought it would be more fantasy than it was based on, I think, when the deal was posted. But that's how I remembered it when I picked it up on the bookshelf. Well, I think that I think both of us are describing it in a way that is true. It's just we're focusing on different details. And I think yeah. often agents will look at the same work and focus on different details and can come up with multiple ways of describing a book as high concept, which I think is really interesting. Well, yeah, I think it's interesting to me that. Yeah, you guys, what you're doing is you're actually giving us comparisons. So you're saying that if that, it, that it's something you can really nosh on and munch on. And then it's something that might like spread like wildfire because people are talking about it in a specific way, right? Yeah. So you're almost using comps to actually help create something in our brain that's pushing us towards grabbing it. One thing that's really 
I think powerful about that is that we're giving people the soundbite to advertise the work for us. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Like if you've ever had an ad that all of your friends were watching and started quoting and claimed that they were using independent thought, but of course we're totally quoting the ad, it's kind of a way of giving people a press packet without them knowing you've given them a press packet. So they feel like they're just sounding smart, whereas they're actually doing a lot of good work for the book. That's so true. That's such a great point. Um, I think one example that came up a lot was one of us is lying. I think they did as the breakfast club meets pretty little liars. I think. Ooh, that's good. I think that's how it was pitched. And you know, that was one, because I think thrillers and mysteries have in the YA market, not, not across the board, but it took a while because, you know, Gone Girl happened in the adult market. And for a while they were trying to capture that, you know, thrillers were having a moment and it didn't really translate to YA and I think that was one that was like a mystery thriller that kind of did catch like wildfire. And I think one of the reasons it did was because it had a concept that was able to be so boiled down. And like you said, you know, you could be your own press packet. Like, I, you know, mm-hmm. these years later, I can kind of remember how they pitched it. And I think when you're just bombarded with so many ideas and you know, Twitter, you know, it, things that are able to stick in your brain have a lot of power. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also because it creates an image, you know, like the idea of the breakfast club, you're like, okay, cool. So it'll have a really interesting social dynamic meets pretty little liars where you're like, oh, it's going to be all this cool secrets and scheming. And they're going to eventually figure out who the murderer is. Um, I think that's actually the perfect set of comps for that book. Well, it's so yeah. interesting. I'm reading that book right now. Like I, I'm oh, really? to that book. <laughs> yeah. And I think you're right. Like, absolutely. That's how I would pitch it. You know, that it's this generation's breakfast club meets Pretty Liars. Absolutely. I think with this discussion, I think it's going to be easier when someone says to us at the Manuscript Academy, oh, this is high concept, that I will be able to actually address whether it really is high concept. I've I've been lost with that answer. It's a hard thing because, you know, I think some things boil down really easily to comps. I think you can have high concept, maybe that's more based on the stakes. But yeah, it is kind of this nebulous concept that when you see it, you know it, right? <laughs> Which is mm. that's what, yeah. That we, we had we had was it Lawrence Spiller that um that, that's what we Lawrence Spiller. Yeah, you, you you know it when you see it. <laughs> and I'm like, no. <laughs> yeah, well it, it's just something that has a certain energy behind it. Like you you can feel the energy of it when you look at it. So Chrissy, you were telling us that um that you have some tips for writers during the pandemic. Can we dive into that for a little bit? Yeah, I would love to. I recently did this contest and I signed up pre-pandemic when time, you know, existed. Um, It was 50 entries and it was their first 250 words. And what was really interesting in doing it in bulk, you know, like that was this pattern really emerged of entry level mistakes that are so easily corrected if you know what to look for. So I guess I could just dive in and, and you guys may have your own thoughts too. I know it's so easy to see patterns when you get a lot of submissions, which is kind of why it's so, I don't know if you do this with your queries, but I do kind of more of a bulk. I don't go into my query inbox every day. I do it more like every three days. Yeah. And but one thing I think that is thrown around a lot is the idea of, you know, starting in action. And I mm-hmm. think it has been misinterpreted as starting in, in peak action, uh, which can be really jarring. I kind of compare it to like, have you ever been like a, you remember when we used to hang out with friends and be in groups, you know, that the glory days? Um, (laughs) yes and you know you walk into a story and you know the person pretty much at the punchline or at the end of the story and you can tell you're supposed to feel a certain way like 
you're like, oh, this is supposed to be scary or funny or, you know, everyone's having this reaction, but you're coming in so late that you have no idea how you're supposed to actually respond. Um, and it's kind of like that when you start in peak action, like you can kind of tell you're supposed to have these emotions, but it's not organic because you haven't really, you don't know who they're talking about. So I'd say start in action and work up to that moment of peak action. And the reason why it's still important to start in action is because otherwise you're just kind of being talked at and it's tough to really get your footing in the story. So I would think of, and this is just an example I've seen recently for whatever reason, I would think of action as being like, this thing is going to happen, this thing might explode versus, ah, this thing's exploding. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the perfect way to put it. And it kind of brings me to another point that I started to see a lot of is that you really want to have a sense of tension or where the conflict, like you're saying, like when the explosion could be happening within the two, first like 250 words. It doesn't have to be, you don't want that conflict to have come to you know fruition, but you need to see some sort of tension on the page. You know, as readers, we're trying to read to find out something. And I think the hardest for me when I get a submission and the first page is I'm like, what am I reading to write? You know, what's, what's the issue? What's the conflict? What am I going to want to see happen? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that ideally in the first few pages, at least in the first 10 pages, you'd have some sense of who the character is, what they want, and why they can't have it. Yeah. And it, and you can have, of course, different arcs like that throughout the story. They can want different things throughout the story. But if you don't know who they are and, you, you know, it's harder to care about them. If you don't know what they want, it's harder to care about the mission of the book and why you should keep reading and the why you can't, they can't have it. You know, if they have it immediately, you're like, okay, cool, done the end. Right, right. Why am I reading? What am I reading to, 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 you know, find out, you know, what is, you know, what is different about this than just my normal day that I could just be focusing on, mm-hmm. um, which is so important. You know, the other thing is, I always think less can be more, especially in those initial pages. I think sometimes readers are so worried about conveying their exact scene that it's too many details. You're just being sensory overload. You can't really even process the scene. You know, sometimes it's okay for a character to just walk through the door. They're not reaching out with their wrinkly hand and turning the antique knob, quarter turn, right? It's just sometimes less is more. And a few well-placed concrete details can really help bring a scene to life um, and let the reader get their foot in the world without being overwhelmed. As long as it's not an alarm clock that starts the story. (laughs) Which, yes. And that's a great point because I think that's the other thing I start to see a lot of. And I, you know, I think it gets kind of hard when people are like, oh, these are firm rules. And, you know, any rule can be broken. But I think the other thing that you see a lot is stories can often start in the same place. Like you said, the alarm clock or waking up for from a dream or getting ready in the morning or a journey. And it's not that it can't be done. It's just that everyone does it. And um, I think it's really important if you're trying to start that way, that you do it in a very interesting way. One of my clients, Lizelle Sanbury, her book is coming out in 2021 from Simon & Schuster. And it does start in the morning and Voya, the main character, is in the bath, which would be very, very boring. But she's in a bath of blood, watching her hands fall because she's been in there so long. You know, so it's it's not that you can't start that way. But if you're going to start, it has to be interesting, right? But that's clever because in a way, she's acknowledging the trope and twisting it, which I appreciate. I love when people do that. I know people throw out the Hunger Games example a lot too, that I think it starts from a dream sequence, but then right away, you know, it's a reaping day. So it's kind of, it works almost well, I think maybe now that we're talking about it with fantasy to start with something so normal and grounded and kind of enter it, enter into the world 
that way, but I think maybe more with contemporary can feel, I don't know, overly familiar. Well, it's interesting because like with YA, I always say you need the layer that is your unique concept, but you also need the layer that's typical teen life. And I think that's often true in fantasy as well. You need your unique story, but you also need the moments that we can relate to just as a human. And I think balancing those properly can help us understand your unique concept better if we know how we're supposed to feel. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's such a great way to put it. A hundred percent. It's so funny, guys. As you're talking about this, I'm distracted because I'm looking out my window and my neighbor is in seventh grade and he's hauling out trash (laughs) and he's hauling out trash and he's singing at the top of his lungs and he's (laughs) occasionally dancing (laughs) to his own beat of his own music and people are pulling over and actually taking cans. And he is like Michael Jackson out there. And I was like, I guess like, the thing is, like, there's something so, like, when you create a character, like, if if the kid next door is a character, and, you know, and you're just observing someone else, that can learn a lot about yourself as well. And I feel like one of the things first pages do is they don't give us time to even, I mean, give us the right details to know the characterization of a character. And so we don't know how to ground ourselves in those first scenes. And, you know, if you're writing a middle grade story, and you started with a kid just doing something really simple and hauling you know something out, but the, the dance or the beat of that character is infused in that scene, then it's interesting, right? Yeah. It doesn't have oh to be something really huge, but it is, it's so funny. Like what, what piece of characterization makes us understand immediately who this character is? And if you went to Katniss, like you, you, from that first page, you know who Katniss is. Mm-hmm. Like no one's surprised when she raises her hand to go into the games, you know, or she volunteers. Um, so I think that's what's so interesting. Like, where do you find those lines and, and how do you, how do you as a writer get enough, but not too much onto the page? So can you guys address that? Well, one thing you did, if I can get really meta for a second, if we were describing you, Julie, the main character, observing your neighbor dancing, just the small detail that you thought of him as Michael Jackson versus a kid on TikTok says a lot about you. (laughs) Hell yeah. (laughs) I would say it was a Michael Jackson, like, you know, like whatever, what's his Coke thing? Like the, the moonwalk, he basically just did a moonwalk out there. That's so is awesome. that, is that TikTok or is that vintage? And what does that say about that kid that, that's doing that with the question is like, how do writers find that balance? Oh, you know, that's a really good question. I think it's really picking a few really concrete details like what you said with the with the boy in the trash can you know the dance you're really honing in on that dance and the dance you chose and that's a really specific choice you know you're not describing everything that would kind of make it overwhelming you know I don't know what his shoes look like I don't know but I can have an image in my head of that child already and I think that's kind of the secret right give a really good unique detail but leave room for the reader to imagine it themselves so I I have this interesting so how how would you guys think that the neighbor was dressed just by hearing how he came out of his house and like dropped off those, those um, cans. Well, just cause she just said shoes. I pictured high tops. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. so that's how the kids dress to me. They're like in jeans and like high tops and like a t-shirt. Right. I don't know. What, what are so, they? Yeah, absolutely. So he had, he had on a skater hat, high top nice. jeans, skater pants and like an oversized sweatshirt. Okay. That's basically what I saw. So that's kind of interesting because you don't really need to spell out those details, right? It doesn't really matter that I saw him in a t-shirt and not, a sweatshirt. A sweatshirt. Yeah. 
But the fact that you guys got the jeans, you got the high tops. I mean, his, his hat his hat was on, you know, it's like a trucker hat. It's kind of like sideways. Oh, <laughs> He's nice. got too much hair because the pandemic. Oh my but, gosh. You know, it's, it's super interesting though, right? So as we make meaning, it is those small details that actually fill in meaning for us. So you actually don't need to put them all because we can just figure it out for ourselves, ourselves unless it's so specific that we need to know. Right. This sounds like a fun game show, Julie, where we like give people just a few descriptions and then we quiz them on what they pictured. <laughs> I know. Well, I love that. <laughs> well, I do this for my class. So, and I think I've talked about this in the Manuscript Academy before, but I'm, Christy, I'm a screenwriting teacher. So mm-hmm. I take first pages of novels and without, they can't see the cover and they can't see, they don't know what genre I'm reading in. And I read one page and I force them to tell me what the entire book's about. And I do it every week. And so oh, wow. it's amazing when you have a f- perfect first page, people can figure out exactly details in that book from that first page just by the tiny, tiny little details that are speckled throughout, throughout a really good first page. And I'm thinking of Bill Rohrbach's um, Life Among Giants. I always use um, The Goldfinch, Donna Tartt's. I mean, like, I, you know, there's all these different books. The Leftovers by Tom Perota. I went to a party with him. You did? Yeah, this is very What's fun. he like? Oh, God, totally, like, normal. Just a normal <laughs> person, you know? I, I, was, I was just like you know, starstruck, but yeah. So anyways, yeah. So, so like not too much, but the right details. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a good point. And I think that kind of goes into voice, right? I think Mm -hmm. voice and Jessica, I don't know if you feel this way, but when I'm looking at a project, a really strong voice will kind of win me over, even if the project needs like plot work or world building or, you know, because I think for me personally, that's something I don't think I can correct necessarily. I think I can build out worlds and point out plot holes, but having a voice, and I think it comes down to like what you're saying, those really smart details. You know, of course it's authentic dialogue, but I think it carries over to the narration, the way you tell the story and the details and the way you construct your sentences based on what kind of story you're telling and all those really informed decisions. And I mean, I don't know if you feel like that, but when I open up a story and it just has that voice. And that's, you know, much like high concept. People always want a good voice and it's that other nebulous concept. Um, but that for me, I, it'll make me take a risk and read on further than I would normally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, how long do you read? I mean, like that, they're, 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 everyone's going to know that when you say, when, when it was that last sentence that you just said, which was, it'll keep me reading on more than you, I normally do. So, so can you tell us what that looks like for you? Like how you attack a submission and how long you usually give each one? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I look at the query first, just cause to make sure it's, you know, something I would represent. It's a genre I represent. Um, if I'm even interested in the concept, I do, I do value queries a lot. I think people are like, Oh, they're so tough to write. But I really believe that most writers, if you have a great idea of your story and you do have a story with clear stakes and conflict, you can write a strong pitch. I just think it's possible. So I really start there. Um, and then I use query manager and I actually have, um, the first 20 pages submitted to me, which I realize is a lot. I think most people, most agents start with the first five. Jessica, what do you, what do you usually ask for within your submissions? I ask for the first 10 because I feel like it's almost an opportunity to raise and lower a small narrative arc within first 10 mm. pages. Um, yeah. Five is enough to get voice though. I mean, yeah. one is enough to get voice often. So I think it's all a matter of preference. I like knowing the 10 are there just in case I want to see how that one first little bit resolves itself. I think that 
totally makes sense. And I think, yeah, depending on how long I read on, it kind of depends. Definitely the first page you can get a great sense. Um, and I think then, then depending how far I read on depends on the concept. If it's something that I just really, really love, even if the first page isn't working, I'll probably read on just to try to see if it can. And same with voice. I don't know if there's really a set number of pages that I have that I have to read, but I think that's why it's so important right now, you know, to focus on those things we're discussing in terms of your initial pages. Um, I always say for authors, you know, don't give an agent a reason to say no, right? Um, mm-hmm. you to just request your project and keep being invested and not put it down. But I, I don't know. Well, how- that, yeah, that's like when someone's like, oh, well, things really get started on page seven. You're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that can be a problem, but sometimes, you know, I think sometimes the first chapter really, I think that's a a common error either with prologue or, you know, I do like to read beyond the first chapter and just see if there's enough elements that I like. Cause I do think often is quite fixable that, that it's just starting in the wrong place. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Just a question we're getting a lot from people in our Facebook group about query manager. You know how you have this spot for the query and you have a spot for the bio. I assume you just want the normal size bio within the query and then a longer bio in that field. Yeah, uh, I just a normal. I I can't speak for all agents, but I'm expecting it just to be a normal bio, like a few lines. I don't I haven't seen authors really build it out and I don't really expect them to, but they definitely can. I most of my submissions, they don't have the bio in the query field. They have separated it out. They have the query and then that little bio is actually in the bio field. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I know everyone wants to get the format exactly right. And so I was just taking the opportunity to ask all the agents I know who use it, how they feel about it. Um, So yeah, you're- What's like? The consensus so far is regular query and then just add bio a little bit longer in the other field. But I can't imagine anyone rejecting anyone for not doing that exactly. No, I don't think so. And I think you bring up a good point. I think there's all this fear about like, one misstep and, you know, it's going to be, I was actually talking to a client, we did this blog post and she was talking about her query and her thoughts and her fears. And I was talking about it and what I thought when I was reading it. And she apparently, you know, was so worried that I think it was putting like the word count at the beginning instead of at the, it's like these little details and maybe there's sticklers out there. I don't know. I guess I can only speak for myself as an agent, but like that really has no bearing. You know, I, I, I don't care, you know, put the word count wherever you want. Like mainly I'm looking for it to make sense and to hit those notes. You know, I want to know the conflict, the stakes, the workout, the genre, but you know, I'm never going to penalize someone for putting their bio at the bottom or putting it in the separate field. You know, I, I can understand that it's confusing. It doesn't bother me. Yeah. I think that's a style choice. And one moment I loved, we were speaking with agent Alyssa Jeanette on our first live recorded podcast, which we did a couple weeks ago. And she actually said that an agent or a, a, a writer put the wrong name at the top of the query and she signed them anyway. That was so, such really, a great story. Yeah. yeah I love that. <laughs> I, can't think that. I mean, I think he, he remembered, he, he figured out that he did it. He was like, Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. That panic moment. But I think that just comes from understanding. I mean, I've done it. I've sent like an editor email and had like another editor. I've been thinking about something else and put, you know, we all, I think it comes from that kind of, kind of know that people just make mistakes and that's okay. I think you don't want a, a query that's just looks like there was no thought in it, but like we're humans, you know, we make typos. We, you know, my name's Christy. I get a lot of Kirsties. There's an autocorrect issue there. I, you, you know, you, I think as an agent, you're always looking for like red flags. Is this going to be someone to, to, that works well and follows the rules? And, um, you know, I think we can overthink that. I think there's also just a room for human error or two. But I love that she signed that person. That's yeah. so funny. And that the, that the author apologized and caught it. I'm sure there's that moment where 
uh, his stomach just fell out <laughs> when they yeah, were. Sure. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I think that there's a difference between a two second error of copying and pasting the wrong thing versus mm-hmm. a multi months error of not putting in the work. Right. 100%. 100%. I know you say this, you're like, it doesn't matter. And then you worry that people take that as like free reign. And that's not what I mean. I at all, I do think you need to put in the work and copy and check. But I just think, I mean, I've proofread things a million times. And you know, it's like how manuscripts get published, and they have typos. It's not that there weren't eyes on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really cool that I think it's really clear if people are trying and I think you get a lot of credit for trying. You have to keep in mind that every day we get a query that's like, dear agent, I have written a book. Here's my number. Thank you. (laughs) Right. Right. No, that's so true. There's so many stressors right now in the world, too. I think it's like the kindest we can be about. Mm -hmm these types of things, because I'm like, Christy, you have a young child. Like we have, I have older children that can make you crazy. They talk to you all the time and love them, you know, but like, plus, you know, work trying to work from home. Plus spouses working from home, plus cats. (laughs) (laughs) There's just so much going on all the time. And I feel like all of us during this pandemic are, are feeling the press, the pressure of these multiple layers of our life collapsing on each other. And we're all just trying to get ahead and, and be successful and help other people and have stories be told. And it's just a really interesting kind of like space. I, I've never worked with this much chaos in my house. Yes. I, I, I find it hard to actually send uh, rejections right now. Um, yeah. I have- I don't know if you feel this way, just queries piling up because I don't want to mm-hmm. be that negative person right now because I know so many people are just, you know, hanging by a thread together. But I guess I will have to. But Yeah, I think they'd appreciate probably the answer. Someone says right. that they got a rejection I'm, on, on Christmas Day. Behind. No, I'm only like a week uh, behind. So it's not yeah. like the no, they need the no, but it is just it's just hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. And then you have to think about like, okay, do I want to send it on a Monday? Cause then will they be upset all week? Do I want to send it on a Friday? Cause it'll ruin their weekend, you know, like, and of course I'm imagining that it has much more power than it probably does. They're probably just like, oh, whatever. But I, that's true. maybe rejection. no one cares. <laughs> I think right. that people appreciate the rejections, honestly, in a way, I, I think it's, it's the not knowing that's worse for people. That's what I'm hearing on our Facebook page. It's just mm. kind of like the, the, well, did, did they get it? Did they see it? Did they, and, and, you know, and I think like, we all understand that this is, this is a, the long haul business. I, I was just thinking of, um, you know, when you go to like the fair and you have like, like one of those guns, you try to like, you try to hit the little bullseye to make like the water squirt at you or whatever. And I kind of feel that's what publishing is. It's like the bullseye is small, but it's really fun. Yeah. That, I like that metaphor. I think that's so great for writers to bear in mind that it is like a long, you know, I think you hear a lot of the stories of people like, I wrote a manuscript and it took a month and then I got a six figure deal. But for so many people, huh. that's really not, you know, <laughs> the reality at all. You know, I, right. It's like a very long slow of manuscripts, manuscripts and tiny advances. And you really, you know, that's what I tell my clients is be prepared for it to be a long journey and to be patient. And I think those are the authors that are able to have success or the people who, and because it's a hard job to be a writer, right? Or mm-hmm. the people who are able to just, there'll be ups and downs and to keep keep going. It's, it's so hard. And I think as an agent too, I don't know if you felt like this, Jessica, but to, you know, getting started, it was it was so hard to sign clients. Yeah. 
get projects sold. And I actually used to go onto publishers marketplace, like I, and was on really bad days when I didn't sign a client and I would look back at like really successful agents, their first deals and how far they were apart. And I'm like, okay, I just need to wait 20 years and then I'll be able to do it really well. <laughs> you know, like, I have to wait 20 years <laughs> and then I'll be a success. But you know, you see these people who are huge, huge successes and it didn't happen overnight. And I think that's something, you know, as you said, to really bear in mind that it's, it's magic when it happens, but it doesn't happen easily. Yeah. Well, we've talked about advice that you often give for people in their 250 pages. Do you have recurring author advice you often give your clients? Well, that is certainly one of them. Like keep, keep your eye on the ball, you know, keep your eyes on your own paper. I don't even know. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that's really, really important. It's just to focus on your own career. And I think that's so hard, but I think you don't always see the the full picture when you're seeing someone's, you know, publicity plan or marketing plan. And I think the only thing you control is you and your writing. And I think that's the most important thing to do. Focus on you, focus on writing. And I think that's the great thing about writing is you can get better. Like you really can improve your craft. It's not something that you necessarily, you know, have to be gifted with. You you learn to write. You don't come out of the womb writing. So that's something I really focus on my clients is to focus on what you can control. And you can also control how you interact with the people you work with. I think that's a really important aspect too. I'm so impressed with one of my clients because we got a new contract in for her and she had excellent questions because the contract before we'd gone through line by line, this is what this means, this is what this means. And I don't expect everyone to absorb all of that. It takes us years to learn how to do all of that. Mm -hmm. But like she had really taken it in and thought about it. And I was like, you know what? Gold star, like good for you. You're being an absolute professional here. Your questions are excellent. And yeah, I'm going to ask those things and also these other things. So. <laughs> that's so smart too, like to not be afraid to ask questions. I think that's something to be, you know, I think agents have this idea that they're scary and you shouldn't bother your agent or whatever. They're too busy for you. And, and that's really not the case. And sometimes we, you don't know, like you're saying, we know so much. It's tough to know maybe where your client is. So I always encourage my clients, if you have a question, there is no dumb question. Like ask me, I want to tell mm-hmm. you, I'm for you. And if I haven't brought it up, it, that's on, on me. That's not because you should know. It. It's just, you know, I just didn't think to bring it up. So I always encourage questions. I think that's so important. Well, and I'm talking to a lot of people who want to join publishing this week. And one of the things that keeps coming up is the fact that I personally don't love the way that our industry does internships. I think it's completely ridiculous to ask someone to pay Manhattan rent while not getting paid. That said, I understand that the industry wants people to spend several years learning because this is a business where you need years and years of just absorbing that information. Now, I absolutely believe we can do that remotely, but the fact that it is something that takes a long time to learn is true. That's an excellent point. And I'm curious to see, you know, now that everyone is working remotely. I mean, I was I was embarrassed for a long time to say that, but people were like, why did you leave New York? Why would you leave New York? And it was, I couldn't afford it. I was getting on a path that like, it wasn't sustainable, you know? And I was someone who came in with no student loans, no anything, but you're at this entry level in the city for so long, making $30,000, $35,000 a year. It's just really hard. And then internships, I don't know where they're at now. When I did internships, they were, I got $25 a day. I mean, obviously yeah. that doesn't go very far in New York and you're, you're learning stuff, but I do think you have an excellent point. Why can't it be remote? And it would just open the door so, so much wider for so many more people. 
Yeah, it absolutely can be remote. And I'm telling everyone, like, look, one of the things I I switched agencies in September. And one of the things I asked about when I was interviewing was, how are we going to handle having interns? Because I just don't believe in making anyone pay rent while not getting paid. And I was really appreciative of the fact that she said that I could, we would talk about a way to do it that was more moral than that. Um, And moral is I think I'm okay with taking a stand with that. Yeah, I think it's immoral to make people pay rent while not getting paid. That's an excellent point. I mean, yeah, it is. It really is. It's crazy that it's just become commonplace. Yeah. And then, you know, people talk about like, oh, why don't we have people from more backgrounds who, you know, happen to have to work for free for two years while paying Manhattan rent? Well, I don't know, Karen. Like, it's just really (laughs) like... Well, this brings up a really, this is, I mean, so this is something we've talked a lot about and we would love to support this somehow in the industry down the road, if we can ever figure out like a great plan for it. But that kind of brings me back around to a kind of a Twitter kind of talk about like, what's the responsibility of the agents knowing that you are working for free until you sell a book? How much feedback do you believe you should give back to the writers um, who have submitted to you? And that was a really interesting thread about whose responsibility was it to help the writers? Like, what do you guys think about that? Like when you, re- when you re- give rejection, how yeah. much personal feedback are you that's, giving? And, that's interesting. And because it's the same thing, right? It's like, right. it's like sometimes the writers expect that, that because you guys have, read it that you should give them something and and it ends up being kind of a weird back and forth with that and I, it's come up a bunch lately do you guys have any thoughts or i'm curious what the general consensus online was i personally do form rejections for most queries but if they're close if there's something i like i do sometimes add things there any sort of material i request i do give feedback on as to why i'm passing if, if it's possible i mean there's always that moment sometimes i have but I just can't put my finger on what's not working. And so then I don't try to guess because I don't think that's really helping the author at all if I'm just throwing out ideas. But usually I do have a specific point as to why I stopped. Queries, I do. I mean, it's just hard because you also want to be able to give the people you signed, you know, the time to give them feedback and really help them and be a champion for their work. And there's only so many hours in the day. So if I'm giving everyone feedback, I do feel like I can't then give my clients feedback, high level feedback. And that's not really fair to them. Yeah. Right. Well, I like what Laura said. Laura Zatz did an interesting thread on this where she was, it was talking Laura, about. That's right. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah where Laura, she was yeah. talking about the practicalities of this. And look, a lot of agents get 40 queries a day. Like, even if that's mm-hmm. all we did, we wouldn't be able to give everyone thoughtful feedback, unfortunately. The way I do it is I have multiple forms. I have the I like the concept form. I like the writing form. The I'd like to see your next book form. The thank you for thinking of me again after you sent me your previous book form. Just to acknowledge that it's a person and I read it. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, we've definitely spoken with agents who say that they've read chapters and chapters and took notes the whole time, but only had time to type up just that one little bit. And I really wish it was easier to just hit share on your Kindle or whatever, because that's how I read submissions and just share the notes that way. And if it was easier, I absolutely would. But typing stuff up takes a really long time. Yeah, no, it really does. And, you know, it's subjective too. So it can be hard to share. I may think something's quiet or slow and another agent may not. So it's sometimes like how much, how specific do you want to get? Because they could just find another agent. I think I always like to leave room in for that when I give feedback that remind authors, this is just me, you know, and that mm-hmm. an agent could feel differently. Yeah. And I'm well, not going just, to make, 
And I'm not going to make up feedback or just force myself to find feedback if I'm not sure, because then I'll be sending a writer off in the wrong direction. And I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, honestly, I asked the question because I feel like that's something that people want is my work because they didn't give me feedback. Was my work not good enough? And I think that's mm-hmm. the perfect answer. I think writers really need to understand the realities of, of and we talk a lot about that here on this podcast, but like your reality is you have a lot to do. Your clients are your main focus and their careers and giving them feedback. And if we all kind of were on the same page with that, I feel like it would just help writers know it's not a slight. It's not, it's just, it's just a reality. And, and like the answer for this, for the writers is get a really good critique group. And everyone says, you know, well, you shouldn't have to pay for feedback. You absolutely, you know, we are here if you want to, you know, to get quick feedback, but like your critique group should be your first line of defense always. So surround yourself with really smart writers, surround yourself as much as you can. And you can build that, you know, like I have an amazing crit group. And I built that. And you can find critique partners in our Facebook group. If you just go to manuscriptacademy.com slash Facebook, there are a couple thousand really nice supportive writers there if you need a critique group. I think going back to what we were saying before, I think agents are always trying to focus their time on where they can do the most good. Mm -hmm. And I think we've specifically chosen clients because we know that we can do the most good for them. I see things in my query pile all the time that I think are completely fine and someone else will love. And I'm not going to say there's something wrong with it just because... like I said, no. And just because I say no doesn't mean there's something wrong with it. I just didn't have that spark of, yes, I know exactly what you should do. Like when you walk into a house and you're like, okay, this is a great house. But if we put the couch over there and move these shades over here, it'll be so much better. You want that feeling of knowing exactly what to do. Exactly. And I think sometimes it's important to remember it's a no, but it's not a no forever. It can be a no for just now or no just for this project. I've signed mm-hmm. that their first project they queried me with wasn't a fit. And then their second project was. Um, so I think that goes back to playing into the idea of keeping the long game in mind. You know, it's a no for now, you know, not a no mm-hmm. forever. Yeah. And I've been so impressed to see second books and third books from people who keep trying me and watching them grow is really gratifying. And I remember them because they had a certain voice again that stood out to me. And so Mm. watching somebody improve over time is really amazing. And it's frustrating for me too when I'm like, you know what, I don't even know why this isn't working for me because I can see so much good here. It's just sometimes you have to go with how you feel and trust that your gut is making a calculation, even if you don't know all the steps along the way. 100%. 100%. How are you feeling about all this, Julie? Are you depressed? Is your kid still <laughs> dancing? No, I was, I was, I mean, I think it's just a really important discussion. And, and I, once again, what I said before, but I think that if this podcast does anything, it's just people understand that, that it's just part of the game, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's I think that's important. Yeah, it's a fascinating business because it's so human and humans have so much nuance. And then we're humans, if going back to how we started this with all of this stuff going on. So it's just, it's, it's an interesting time to try, you know, to try to be kind of discovered, but it's also interesting time to be on submission. And it's also interesting time. If you have a book coming out, it's a, everything is just kind of different. I don't know how to explain it. But everyone's still trying and everyone still yeah. really cares. And I think everyone yes. is yeah. kind of rounding up for everybody right now. You know, yeah. like like we see what you're doing and we're like, okay, well, that's what you're doing when you're under immense pressure. So I'm going to assume that the rest of the time you're 20% more polished or something like that. 
I think that's what I love so much about the publishing industry is that there's so much heart and there's so many kind people. And I think I've seen that a lot, just the grace being extended to people right now. Mm. It's really great to see. I mean, it's really special. I actually left publishing for a brief period when I moved out of New York and I just miss that. I miss the people and I miss being working in a career that for so many is also like a passion and a hobby. I don't think dentists are necessarily, you know, flossing teeth teeth on Saturday and having a good time. You know, it's a weird <laughs> that it is also people's passion. And I think that's so, so special. And I think you're really seeing that now when people are under immense stress, just the kindness that's still being. Mm. So, I mean, like, is that a good place to end, Jessica? What do you think? Um, why don't we ask one more question? So, Christy, what's your number one tip for writers? Oh, gosh, the number one tip, read, read in your genre. I know that's something that gets said a lot, but I'm always shocked at how little it's followed. And I think you see it a lot at conferences. When I sit down with a writer and talk to them for like a minute about their project, I already know if they've read in their genre. So it can seem like, you know, not needed, but read current stuff too. I think that's always hard. People will read like classics or, you know, read Harry Potter and say, I know middle grade. And that's not really enough. You don't, you need to know what's working in the market You need to know what is already in the market so you can know what you can do different so you're not competing with what's on the shelf. And you kind of, I think reading helps, you know, we talked about voice earlier, really hone in on that voice. And with writing, it's not just getting words out. You know, it's when you're writing a story, it's very different than if you write a term paper or, you know, whatever else you're writing. And I think when you read and you really connect to to a story, you can see that. So read, read, read. That'd be my my advice. And I have just one more question for you. And I'm curious, like living outside of New York, how does it feel building a publishing community? And like, how is it different to have that when you're in New York versus when you're somewhere else? That's a great question. You know, I did start in New York. So I did have a little teeny, teeny little network when I left. I think it's just different now. I think I go to New York a lot and I really make a point to meet with people face to face But, you know, there's other agents that don't. I think there's some agents that are just so good at being charming over phone and email. You can really feel like they know them. But yeah, I think it's just changed now because so many things are digital and email. And I don't think people necessarily had the time they once did for those big, long lunches. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it matters, but I personally do go to New York and I think that helps me. And I think having had that network and knowing, you know, just, just people in the industry, I don't think you need to. But for me and how I've worked, I've enjoyed starting in New York. And I also enjoy starting in a publishing house personally. Um, you know, I was in publicity, but just having that kind of global understanding of what's going on, it kind of makes feedback and what I'm dealing with editors on make a little bit more sense. I can kind of place it and have been on the other side, but I don't, I, I don't even remember what I kind of went off on you know, tangent. I'm sorry. But yeah, I think, I think now it's a great place to be an agent because, you know, if you're thinking publishing is a business, which I think people often forget. And if you're not paying you know, New York rent and you're not having all that, you have a lot more flexibility and a lot, I think it's an easier time to stay in the industry, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just from a business standpoint, which I feel like people really don't talk about that much about publishing. I mean, I think it is a business. So strategically, I think it's really helpful to not be in New York, actually. It is really interesting how our business doesn't talk about general business facts that often, kind of like how those MFA programs are like, nah, we're not here to talk about getting published. We're here to talk about craft, you know? Right, <laughs> like, right. It rarely comes up. Yeah. But it's like, okay, if you're going to pay a starting salary of 35000 a year in a city where rent is probably going to be 1200 a month for a room and a place that is falling apart, how are you not providing budgeting advice at the very least? Like, can we have a Google Doc? Like, is that too much to ask? 
you know, right. we have a panel of like, here's how I save money. Here is how I fix these things around the house that my landlord wouldn't fix. Like, why is this not common knowledge? It's absolutely ridiculous to me that this is not something that uh, exists. And I think a lot of it comes with shame, which is too bad because we're like embarrassed that we're living in places that are falling apart. Or I certainly did for many years. And rather than be like, oh, wait, so is everyone else. It's kind of taken on as a, oh, if only I was better at the job, I'd have more money and I'd live somewhere fancy, which is just not true. Hmm. No, I love that these conversations have come up more because it is such a taboo thing, right? And to ask mm-hmm. for more, but like, I feel like the doors have flung open just a little bit, which has been so great. Cause definitely when I was in it, it was definitely like, if you wanted a raise or anything, people are like, why? And it's like, yeah. I need money. And it was definitely that idea that working in publishing is this privilege and that there's mm-hmm. people who would, you know, want to have this job if you quit. And I think that's a really bad mentality to have. And I think maybe there's slower strides to fix that, which I, I'm, I'm pleased to see. I think it's super important. It's really nice to see these conversations happening. And it gives me hope that in the future, we will just continue to talk more. Yeah. Right. You know, Jessica, I was just thinking of the time when you came to my house and you're like, people come, come over and just stand at your, you know? yeah. <laughs> and that was like, you've come a long way in three and a half years, you know, and like, how you thought about it and, and talking about it. It's interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's been really – like one thing that I think is hard about New York is that people almost never go to, go over to your house because almost everyone is embarrassed about what their house looks like. <laughs> There's just no such thing as like the normal stuff, right? Like you don't get a washer and a dryer. You don't get enough space that you can easily entertain. And yeah, that's, that's one aspect of life that I definitely miss when I'm in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of yeah. love that about New York. That was actually the hardest thing moving to Atlanta for me is that, you know, people have space. So people just go home to their, you know, apartments or homes after work. You know, you don't, you're not dreading it. You're not like, oh my God, the rats are acting up in the ceiling. I would prefer to go home. Yes, that was my thought. I'm like, oh, the rats, I'm, I need to stay up so I can fall asleep so I don't have to hear the rats because they're so noisy right now. And like, you know, it's so, I was much more social and it was such, it was such a great way to meet people. And publishing is just such a great so many great people. So I miss that. So there's, there's pros and cons. Yes. You don't have the rats in your ceiling, but then people are in their homes because they don't have the rats in their ceiling. You know, it's a double edged. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's been <laughs> such a pleasure, Christy. Like I, this is, I, I, I love this um, kind of like free flowing conversation that we had. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking. Amazing. <laughs> so tell us where we can find you online. I'm on Twitter at Christy S Hunter. And then also the Night Agency web- website is www.nightagency.net. And there's info on all our agents and our submission guidelines. Yay. Thank you so much. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. And not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.